and our third and final talk about patriarchy. And I loved um, what David and what Tom had to say in the last couple weeks. Um, but before we get started on this, I want to state what might be obvious to many of us, but we've not directly said it yet in this series. So in Genesis 1, it says, God created humans in God's own image. Male and female, God created them. Here at Sanctuary, we understand there to be no binary with regard to gender. In this community, we have folks who identify as both partly male and partly female, as neither male nor female, as gender fluid, as transgender, and so on. We celebrate our differences and recognize all to be created in the image of God. We <clears throat> understand that straight, white, middle class, and above, cisgender women, like myself, fare best under patriarchy. And to be clear, patriarchy is not an equal opportunity offender. I alluded to this several weeks ago when part of my teaching, we answered a questionnaire that helped us understand our privilege honoring the intersectionality of our identities. And this is something that we will come back to again and again and again. But just to say it out loud, trans persons, and not exclusively, but especially trans women, suffer extraordinary violence under patriarchy. Amen. Well, this morning we'll look a little bit at the trickster motif again, the cost of justice and what it takes to be born again. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Joseph, whom some of you will remember, found favor with Pharaoh by interpreting his dreams of seven years of feast followed by um, seven years of famine. And when Joseph successfully interpreted these dreams, Pharaoh was so impressed that he put him in charge of over all of Egypt under no one except for himself. And he and his family and his clan enjoyed peace and good life in Egypt, but time moved on, and that's where we pick up our story. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt, Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave our countries. So the descendants of Joseph are now a threat to Pharaoh. And what do we do when we're threatened? 
They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, I did not give birth on a delivery stool. <laughs> I gave birth five times, never on a stool. If you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Now, we just get this one sentence, right, in the Bible. We just get this one sentence. Um, but the midwives, they understand what's not being said. They understand that how they answer this question can determine whether they take another breath. The Pharaoh has all power, they have no power. They understand their vulnerability. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I'm Jewish. That's not necessarily true. <laughs> so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families of their own. Okay, I shared a couple weeks ago um, what a trickster motif was, and I will explain for anyone who wasn't here. Um, in mythology and in the study of folks, folklore, a trickster is a character in a story who exhibits a great deal of intellect or some secret knowledge and uses it to play tricks or otherwise disobey normal rules, and to defy conventional behavior. In the Bible, tricksters find a means to justice when there is no pathway, no legal pathway available to them. So let me say that again. In the Bible, tricksters find a means to justice when there is no legal pathway. And so those are often women that are tricksters um, in the Bible. So here we have these two women. We have Shipra and Pua. They have one choice, one pathway to justice according to the law where they are, and that is to obey Pharaoh. There was no legal pathway to justice as they understood justice. So these women risk their lives fabricating a somewhat ludicrous story, but arguably there was less known about women's reproduction 3,000 years ago. These two women were certainly the heroes, 
in this story briefly saving the lives of some children. Ultimately, it didn't change the heart of Pharaoh, and he would hatch a new plan for how to kill the baby boys. Power is as power does. All right. We have spoken a bit in the past few weeks about my reordination. I'm excited about it. But in all honesty, it has taken me 20-some years to get here. Why is that? Why has it taken me this long to publicly name this and to do something about it? So our story goes something like this. Tom and I moved here from Chicago for Tom to take a fellowship at the hospital. We intended to be in Iowa City for just a couple of years. We had four kids, two, four, six, and eight, and our youngest was about to be born, not on a stool, not <laughs> vigorously. We longed for a place to worship that made sense to us that held our values. We tried several faith communities, and they all had their strengths, and they all had their weaknesses, and they were lovely, but they were not us. So we ended up gathering a small group of people and began worshiping in our home, and then in Mercy Hospital, and then sometime later in the Iowa City Rec Center. By now, Tom had a full-time position at the hospital, and we knew that we were going to stay here for the long haul, and we wanted an official, we wanted to become an official vineyard church plant. We were part of the uh, Association of Vineyard Churches. So we went to our regional leader and asked him, um, can we make this little church plant we have, this little community we have, um, an official vineyard church plan. We know we're going to be here for the long haul. Now, let me just say that this man was on our side, that this would have been about 2000, year 2000. And so we as a movement, the vineyard movement would not have been egalitarian at that time. It wouldn't become egalitarian for six more years. Egalitarian, for those who don't know what it means, just means that the community, the churches would be uh, gift-based. You lead according to your gifting as opposed to complementarian, which would mean gender-based. You lead according to your gender. Men lead, women follow. So when he said, when our regional leader said what he said, it was in the tradition of the trickster motif. When he said what he said, he understood there was no pathway forward. When he said what he said, we would love for you to become an official vineyard church. Tom, you just sign your name on the dotted line, 80 we know you will lead the church. When he said that, it could be tempting for us to judge this man, and it could be tempting for you all to judge me and Tom, and you may. But in those days, in the movement we were a part of, there were no pathways 
for women to become senior pastors. We did not have imagination for that. We were a complementarian movement, and we would be for some time. And Tom and I, we had no theology at that time for me being a solo senior pastor. We only had a reality. So good tricksters that we are, we agreed. Tom signed, we celebrated, and a part of me died. Truthfully, truthfully, we didn't pay attention to that part. We paid attention to all the goodness of God that was in our lives. I had my five kids, for which I was astonishingly grateful, and I had what I've always believed and still believe is the best faith community ever. So maybe I don't have to think about the part of me that died. This is the thing about the trickster motif. Shifra and Pua were heroes but they sat in a context. The reason one needs a shifra and a pua to break the law is because the existing law is harming, or in this case, killing people. So while we are grateful for our tricksters, we must acknowledge the systems that they are situated in, and the pain and the harm that those systems cost. In my case, it took me over 20 years to really let myself understand all that transpired. At that moment, where Tom signed his name, and I received my call, sort of. When I was in my 20s, I worked for an organization called World Relief, helping to resettle in those Chinese refugees, mostly um, they were Cambodian. Their stories typically went something like this. They would say, Adi, we, we went to the market to get some food, and we were walking back to the village, but we saw that it was in flames and everybody was dead. So we began our harrowing treacherous escape to Thailand, where we've been living behind barbed wire for the past few years until your church, um, the church we were part of at that time, decided to sponsor us. I was telling David recently that when families would first arrive, they were so happy. They were so grateful. Freedom. No more barbed wire, no more wars. We can breathe again. It took some time before that gave way to a real dark night of the soul. No more beautiful Cambodian countryside. No more village that I loved. 
no more community, no more familiar culture and spiritual expression. We no longer speak the dominant language. The same could be said for those participating in the Underground Railroad, whether rescuer or one being rescued. What was happening was great, helping people get to freedom. That's always great. But we should not need an Underground Railroad. People should not have to escape to freedom. We should not have to leave family and friends for the sake of our liberation. Every time any of us has to make some kind of compromise or concession because of our identity, we gain something, right? We gain something or we would not do it. And here's what we sometimes don't pay attention to. A part of us dies. For an African-American to name a child what might be considered a more white name so that child has a better chance of being hired 20 years later, that's an understandable choice. But no one should ever have to make that choice. For anyone to tone down their identity, either because of race or sexuality or gender, in order to win the favor they're seeking from the dominant culture, that's understandable, but at what cost? Two things happened since Tom signed on the dotted line all those years ago. The community has changed, our community has changed, and I have changed. Early on in our church, I had a meeting with several women who were key leaders in our community, and they were friends. At this time, we probably had 100 people in the church. We were maybe five or six years into our church plant. The vineyard by that time was transitioning, the vineyard movement, to becoming an egalitarian movement. And what that meant was that it was easier for me to talk now about gender, about, uh, without it feeling like I was just hungry for position. Or maybe I didn't appreciate Tom enough. And so in this meeting, I asked these women, what was it like? What's it like for your husbands having a woman senior pastor? And they all said, they're, they're doing fine now. But it was hard in the beginning. Having Tom, though, as a co-senior pastor, it helps. As our church was being formed, many of our attenders experienced the vineyard as more progressive 
than the churches they had come from because there are degrees of complementarity. And we, the vineyard, were considered soft complementarians. And in the vineyard, women could be leaders of small groups. You could be on the board. Maybe you could even be on staff. Sometimes you could preach. As long as you weren't the senior leader, as long as there was a man somewhere in the house that was over you. Being Tom and Adie, it made it a lot easier for us to grow church in the evangelical world. And the truth was, is, I wasn't ready. There were a lot of things that I told myself over the years. They were voices that I heard and that I had internalized. I should be grateful for what I have, period. Don't call unnecessary attention to yourself or the situation, Adie. And what if I say something and nobody gets it? Or maybe they think, what's the big deal? I could not get to this moment until I had fully internalized what patriarchy denies, that I am the big deal, that I matter, that women matter, that sexual minorities matter, that people of color matter. And we can't kid ourselves, believing that with our heads. That's hard enough when there are things happening every day to remind us that it's not true. Believing with our hearts, man, that takes a lot of work and a lot of healing, and some years of therapy. And in the end, I would say, it takes being born again. Or at least what Jesus was getting at when he said to Nicodemus, son, you must be born again. Nicodemus, the worldview that you've inherited, it's not working for you anymore. You're growing and evolving. I get it. You're scared. To enter my realm will cost you everything. So you came to me at night. That's okay. It's scary to start believing something that goes against everything you thought, all that you've been taught, a way of being conscious in the world. It's scary how much you will lose, who you will lose. It's hard, but you must be born again. And so, as a community, and as a couple, and as myself, we have been in the process of being born again, of being reformed. And we do this every time that we declare that Black Lives Matter. 
We do this every week when we recite and rehearse our opening statement. We are a community that makes space for every race, ethnicity, age, orientation, and gender identity. There is a little story in the Gospel of Luke. It goes something like this. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman who'd been crippled by a spirit, there was a woman who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. And it goes on, as you can imagine, the leaders get mad at Jesus, and Jesus has some big feelings about the leaders. But the woman who has been bent over is standing upright before God. She's probably doing some kind of power pose. <laughs> she gets it. I've been bent over, hurt, and diminished for 18 years. Parents, if you have a kid in the room, could you just put your hand over their ears for just a minute? Because I kind of picture her saying, I'm done with this shit. <laughs> Nobody covered little Jerry's ears. I taught my grandson his first swear word. It's like, please don't put that on my tombstone. <laughs> this, I believe, is God's invitation to us this morning. No more tricks. I am going to fully inhabit my God-given identity, blessing you all with everything I have, fully as a woman, in a woman's body, with a woman's mind, a woman's heart, and a woman's soul. And I expect you all to do the same for everyone else here, from within yourself. No need for excuses or justifications or qualifiers or tricks. We, together, are leaving something behind. Good riddance to patriarchy. What we are entering into, we can only begin to imagine. But we'll do it together, and it will be glorious. So, and here's where I'm ending. Well, that was kind of fun. <laughs> All right, so here's what we're going to do. If you are someone who has ever been diminished 
by patriarchy or by white supremacy. If you have had to compromise in some way to get where you needed to go, or if you have ever had to make choices that were only necessary because of your identity, choices that either harmed or helped you or both, or if you are someone who has benefited from patriarchy in ways that you are still understanding, if you are someone who's caused harm to others because of patriarchy, basically, if you're human and you recognize your bentness, I invite you to do a moment of prayer imagination. Imagination prayer with me. So, if you fit any of those categories and you feel like it, I invite you to close your eyes. And we're just going to take a moment and sit with this. So Holy Spirit, come. Be with us as we do this. So I invite you to think for a moment, how are you bent and what has contributed to your being bent? We'll take 20 seconds just to think about that. And if you like, picture Jesus calling you toward him and what it might mean to walk to Jesus and just be in Jesus' presence for a moment. And now, hear Jesus saying to you, human you are set free from your infirmity. Or perhaps Jesus is calling you by name. Eighty, you've been set free by your infirmity. Of your infirmity, Tom, you've been set free from your infirmity. Hear God speak to you and see what it feels like to stand upright and tall and straight and fully embodied, fully present to all that it means to be wonderfully and gloriously you. Amen.